choose the right moment and they say you can explain the whole of history. Well, maybe. But there are some moments when a whole lot of things do seem to come together. And here's one of them. It's Sunday afternoon, the 2nd of May, 1937. We're in the garden of a chateau a few miles south of the town of Tours in France. Our moment just lasts a split second. Enough time for a photograph. A woman is standing rather awkwardly in a flower bed with a bunch of pussy willow in her hand. She's wearing a pure white dress which glows in the sunshine. The photographer is Cecil Beaton. The woman is Wallace Simpson, who in a month's time is going to marry the ex-king of England. But what everyone notices about this photo is not Wallace Simpson or the pussy willow, but the design smeared down the front of her dress. It's... It's a large lobster. A lobster? Hello. Good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Well, welcome to another in our occasional series about the 1930s. Actually, instead of History Café, this is History Kitchen Table, since we're in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown. But other than that... Everything's just about the same. Okay, so where were we? The first weekend of May 1937, Wallace Simpson commissioned the young English fashion and society photographer Cecil Beaton to take a series of photographs before her wedding in June. Simpson was a twice-divorced American and King Edward VIII's determination to marry her had caused a constitutional crisis. Early in December the year before, he'd been forced to abdicate the throne. So here she is, waiting for him at a French chateau, clutching a bunch of pussy willow with a large silk lobster down her skirt. Now, this all starts out as a bit of fun, but it soon turns into a pretty dark story. It's also an object lesson in doing history, because, well, the way you see that dress in that garden on that woman depends very much on whose eyes you're looking through. So where do you want to start? Wallace Simpson, Edward, Cecil Beaton, the chateau, France... French fashion, English appeasement, the USA, Spanish Civil War, Nazi Germany, May 1937, the photograph, the dress, or the lobster? <laughs> well, well, we really have to start with the woman in the photo, Wallace Simpson. What on earth did she think she was doing in a lobster dress? Well, take a punt and you guess that Wallace Simpson saw that lobster as her own private joke with Edward. Simpson had been born in Blue Ridge Summit, Pennsylvania, and christened Bessie Wallace Warfield. Her father, Teekle Wallace Warfield, was a failed southern businessman who died when she was five months old. So she grew up in poverty, and the English establishment always blamed the fact for what they saw as her strongly acquisitive streak. But then Wallace Simpson is surrounded by so much myth and unsupported gossip, difficult for the historians to sort out fact from fiction. We do know that when she was 20, she married a naval pilot who soon became a drunk, though whether this was the cause of her affair with an Argentine diplomat or the other way round, nobody knows. The pilot was then posted to China, where Wallace eventually joined him spending a year. And there she learnt, so society gossip later claimed, and for which there is no reliable evidence at all, all kinds of oriental sexual skills. 
Oh, and she also had an affair with a man who would later be Mussolini's son-in-law and having a botched abortion. No real evidence for any of that either. At any rate, by now, she'd fallen in with Ernest Simpson, her second cousin, a wealthy Anglo-American shipping businessman. So in 1927, she divorced the pilot and the next year married Simpson. They went to live in London and got in with the smart American set around the American embassy. Here she got to know Gloria Vanderbilt, mother of Gloria Vanderbilt, the fashion designer. And more importantly, Gloria's twin sister, Thelma Furness, who was the long-standing mistress of David, the Prince of Wales, the man who would later become Edward VIII. 19th of June, 1933, was Ernest Simpson's 37th birthday. And the couple plucked up courage and invited Prince Edward, known to his family and friends as David, for the first time to dinner in their London apartment. Well, Wallace served up, you guessed, grilled lobster. Actually, David, Edward, David, was more interested in the raspberry souffle and asked for the recipe. Be that as it may, four years later, that lobster dress could have been a private joke between them. If so, she had no idea what she was getting into. Anyway, by the middle of the next year, 1934, Wallace had supplanted Thelma Furness and was having a full-blown affair with David. In fact, it was causing such gossip that King George V, David's father, had Wallace followed by the police special branch. They apparently discovered she was also having affairs with a car salesman called, appropriately, Mr Trundle, and with Edward Fitzgerald, the seventh Earl of Leinster. And then there was Count Joachim von Ribbentrop, Hitler's pet diplomat. Well, now we're getting somewhere. Well, no, not necessarily. You'll often read a story that Wallace had an affair with Ribbentrop, that he used to send her 17 roses every day because that was the number of times they'd slept together. Well, there's no evidence for that either. But we do know, because the police reported it to the government, that Wallace organised an introduction for Ribbentrop to David, Edward, Prince of Wales. The thing is that from 1934, Ribbentrop had been running his own private foreign office in Berlin, the Dienstelle Ribbentrop, the Ribbentrop Department. The Nazi regime was often chaotic, was based deliberately on the principle of the survival of the fittest. So Ribbentrop, with Hitler's backing, set up his own foreign office, working against the official German foreign office and more in line with Hitler. Ribbentrop became a kind of roving German ambassador. But his most important task was to build good relations with Britain. As we see in another series at the History Café, Hitler had no intention of invading Britain. What he wanted was an alliance of empires. The Brits around the world, his in Europe. So from 1934, Ribbentrop spent a good deal of time in London, trying to make contact with sympathetic Brits. And since Wallace Simpson spent a good deal of her time rubbing uh, shoulders with diplomats, and since she was now the heir to the throne's mistress, it would be no surprise at all if Herr von Ribbentrop used her as a convenient channel to approach the future king. She was certainly invited to a string of events at the German embassy. Wallace Simpson herself may not have understood all that much about politics. Cecil Beaton, the photographer that weekend in May 1937, records in his diary for that weekend that Simpson was, quote, politically ignorant. He got to know her pretty well, sketching and photographing her the year before in 1936. That weekend at the Chateau, they stayed up talking most of the night before the photograph session, and apparently there was no mention at all of the extraordinary political events that, as we shall see, were going on all around them. But the thing is... Ribbentrop would have found David, the Prince of Wales, unmistakably sympathetic to Hitler. (laughs) 
Simpson, the woman photographed in the lobster dress, had introduced the Prince of Wales to Hitler's personal foreign envoy, Count von Ribbentrop. And David, the prince, later to be Edward VIII, briefly King of England, was undoubtedly sympathetic to Hitler. By the time the photograph was taken in May 1937, he was no longer king, just the Duke of Windsor, and temporarily living in an Austrian schloss. He'd fled England, but didn't dare to move in with Wallace Simpson until her divorce was finalised. As we shall see, had they flaunted their affair at this time, it might have prevented her divorce going through. However, before we think about Edward anymore, we should look around a bit. I mean, look around from the camera at the French chateau where the photograph was being taken. Until 1927, Chateau de had been just another 16th century chateau in the Loire Valley. That year it was bought by Charles Bedeau, a Franco-American entrepreneur who made his millions with a system of time and motion management, a way of measuring how much work each employee got through and making them work harder. Bedeau's system was so successful it had become a worldwide business empire and the basis for much of modern management consultancy. It was also so fabulously unpopular with workforces that it provoked bitter strikes in the United States, Britain and Italy. Once the news broke in England in December 1936 that the king might abdicate his throne, Wallace Simpson had slipped away to France to escape the relentless press and, it has to be said, the hostility of most of her erstwhile society friends. In March 1937, Charles Bedeau invited her to live at his chateau. It was extremely convenient. Bedeau had an American wife. The chateau had enormous grounds which kept the press at a distance until they started hiring planes to film overhead. There was a private 18-hole golf course. Bedo had poured money into the chateau itself, fitting it out with the latest plumbing, quite a breakthrough in mid-century France, and in the smartest Art Deco style. More important, it had a telephone. In fact, it had its own telephone exchange, so that Edward and Wallace could speak several times a day. But there was a darker side to Wallace Simpson's management consultant friend. Five months after the photograph was taken, Monsieur Bedo organised a honeymoon for the newly married couple. In October of 1937, he got together with Hitler's personal adjutant, Fritz Fiedemann, and then with Robert Ley, the head of Hitler's Arbeitsfront, the Labour Front. And together, they organised a very public honeymoon tour for the couple, a tour of Nazi Germany. Bedo apparently paid Ley $50,000 for the privilege the time and motion expert, we can assume, smelled a glorious business opportunity. Getting Ley to take him on as a management consultant of the Third Reich, as German factories worked round the clock to arm the country for war, was perhaps all too tempting an idea. As we shall see in another History Café discussion, there were plenty of American business interests in Nazi Germany. Hitler's armies would go to war in American trucks, burning American diesel, all funded by generous American loans. No wonder the Americans were reluctant, until Pearl Harbour, to go to war. So Wallace and Edward paraded around Hitler's Reich to the complete horror of the British government. They went to political meetings. They visited Krupp's factories making German tanks and U-boats. They were met by enthusiastic crowds who called Wallace Her Royal Highness, which delighted her since the British had refused to give her any such title. They went to a concert of Wagner's music, Hitler's favourite, and were met with Nazi salutes. They went to an elite Nazi academy. They had dinner with Ribbentrop, of course. Hermann Goering, who was not only head of the German Air Force, but also in charge of Germany's four-year rearmament plan, took them on a tour of his hunting estate. Dr Goebbels, the fanatic head of Nazi propaganda, concluded that the Duke was 
eine Persönlichkeit, a great man. And of course, the Duke took tea with Hitler himself in his mountain retreat, where the world's press took pictures and the Windsors gave Nazi salutes. Up until December 1936, when Edward had abdicated, the British press had abided by a gentleman's agreement not to report his affairs. But they were all over the German visit. Churchill, who remained steadfastly loyal to Edward well into the 1950s, claimed that British cinema audiences cheered newsreels of the Windsor's tour of Germany. Well, perhaps they did, though it seems unlikely, and how Churchill would know anyway is another question. But this was clearly a major embarrassment for the British government. So the innocent photograph of Wallace Simpson in a dress standing in Charles Bedeau's flowerbed is perhaps not so innocent after all. Mrs Simpson might have been politically ignorant, but as we shall see, by May 1937, even she cannot have been unaware of Hitler's increasingly hardline and warlike regime. And certainly Edward knew all about it. They apparently found the chateau congenial, not only because the baths ran quickly and there were telephones, but also because they shared pro-German, not to say pro-Nazi sympathies, with its owner. Well, perhaps Bedo was just a businessman with an eye to the main chance. There are those who maintain the whole German tour was the Duke's idea and Bedo was pushed into all the meetings with Hitler's henchmen that went into setting it up. Uh, I have to say it doesn't look like it. Bedo's $50,000 were well spent. As a result of the tour, his business assets in Germany were unfrozen and he was able to resume trade there. More to the point, when two and a half years later the Germans invaded France, Bedo did not take the opportunity to escape. In fact, he took the opportunity to sign up to the new Nazi regime. Driving himself around in a smart German car, he opened the fashionable and well-appointed Chateau Condé to the invading military. And then he took a job organising the factories that the Germans seized from the French Jews. By 1942, Bedo was working on providing pipelines for water, gas and oil in German-occupied North Africa. In December of that year, the French finally caught up with him and handed him over to the Americans. General Eisenhower sent the head of the FBI's Special Intelligence Unit to interrogate Bedo. Unfortunately, the plane went down over dense jungle, killing everyone on board. It wasn't until 1943 that Bedo was finally shipped to Miami and investigated as a collaborator and a spy. Well, he committed suicide before he could be tried. So the photograph in the garden at Chateau Condé opens a whole can of worms about what was going on, not only in the mind of Wallace Simpson or Charles Bedeau, the chateau's owner, but more importantly, for the course of European events, in the mind of the man who for 327 days had been the British monarch. To what extent was King Edward VIII a Nazi sympathiser? Can it possibly be true that Edward VIII was a Nazi sympathiser? Actually, before we go there, we should just try to see this photograph from another point of view. The lobsters. Uh, Wallace Simpson may or may not have chosen it as a private joke, but who on earth would have designed a dress like that? <laughs> well, the dress had been designed by Elsa Schiaparelli for her 1937 spring collection. It's become something of a fashion icon of the 1930s. Wallace Simpson chose it as one of 17 dresses she bought from Scaparelli for what, at the time, they called her trousseau. In other words, dresses for her honeymoon. Shows just how far poor Bessie Wallace Warfield had come from those Pennsylvania days. Elsa Scaparelli was one of the top couturier in the world. 
her shop in Paris just across the Place Vendôme from Coco Chanel. Shows, in fact, how much money Edward was giving her. When he abdicated, he not only demanded an annual pension of £25,000, but took with him something like a million from the Duchy of Cornwall. He even made his brother buy him out of his life interests in Sandringham and Balmoral, and much of this money gave straight to Wallace Simpson. There are those who believe the lobster dress was designed especially for Wallace Simpson, but it seems unlikely. Historian Claire Eldred has shown that the dress had first appeared the month before in the April 1937 edition of French Vogue. It was, reported Vogue, a waltz dress, intended for the latest Parisian craze, which was a revival of the waltz. So it was cut above the ankle with a full skirt, very sheer, intended to be worn over petticoats. Vogue thought the lobster was a playful joke, adorning the dress, as they said, like a pink bouquet. The dress was such a hit that Vogue ran a second feature on it in May, describing it as, quote, organza, printed with a fun motif. Now you may ask what Wallace Simpson was doing standing in a flower bed in the middle of the afternoon in a waltz dress, dazzling white moreover, which was that year's fashion for evening wear. Well, we might guess that the blame for that lies with Cecil Beaton, the photographer. He'd made his name taking photographs with a touch of the surreal. Portrait of the writer Aldous Huxley has him peering through a tear in a net curtain. One of Catherine Hepburn has the actress with her back to an enormous peacock. So Beaton was clearly into the surreal. In his diary, he records that he photographed Wallace Simpson in a whole series of outfits that Sunday afternoon, maybe all 17 in her trousseau. But it was the organza shots he liked best because, he wrote in his diary, they best caught the sunlight. Putting the woman in a flower bed with the pussy willow was a typical beaten touch. This, after all, is the man who held an enormous party at his Wiltshire house in July 1937 and turned up in a costume covered in hard-boiled eggs. Oh, and he wore three other elaborate costumes in the course of that night, and that's besides getting his waiters to wear animal masks. But scratch beneath the surface, and you discover something else entirely. Among the people Cecil Beaton photographed in the autumn of 1936 was the Spanish surrealist painter Salvador Dali, the man, you know, famous for the melting clocks and the extraordinary upturned moustache. Well, Dali had been in London for an exhibition, and Beaton photographed him with his wife Gala. Some of the photographs, which were published in American Vogue that November, have Dali and Gala with fencing swords and a helmet, like some kind of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. They clearly all hit it off, because Dali and Gala went down to stay with Beaton in his Wiltshire house, and Gala wrote in the visitor's book, See you soon in New York. Beaton had an exhibition opening in New York on 4th of January 1937, which included the photographs and sketches he'd done of Wallace Simpson early in December. And Dali and his wife Julie came along. It was Dali who later suggested where to get the animal masks for the party. Now this is significant because it was Salvador Dali who designed the lobster on Wallace Simpson's dress. Aha! He'd been collaborating with Elsa Schiaparelli since 1934 on a series of outfits inspired by surrealism. But the lobster wasn't just any arthropod. The point is that for Dali, the lobster was a symbol of sex. In 1936, he designed a series of surreal objets for the home of the English poet and collector Edward James. Among them were four working telephones. They were typical 1936 telephones with a square black Bakelite base, but where the mouthpiece and earpiece should be was a large lobster. You held it with its claws to your ear and its tail to your mouth. Dali called it not only the lobster telephone, but also the aphrodisiac telephone. 
The fact that the male lobster's sexual organs are in its tail perhaps gives you the message. Well, nobody's explained exactly why Dali made this connection between lobsters and sex. Uh, like much else in Dali, it's impossible to explain. Though he was obsessed with Freud, who was not, by the way, at all impressed by Dali. It apparently has something to do with the lobster's phallic appearance and its claws having a connection with castration. Anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> lobsters and sex were mixed up in Dali's often impenetrable mind. And we can certainly have no doubt that Cecil Beaton got the idea, because by May 1937, he'd spent a good deal of time with Dali. Besides, a number of Beaton's closest friends had also been involved in fitting up and decorating that Edward James house with the telephones. Now, Dali's lobster dress, in fact, has two lobsters. One at the back has its pincers resting on Wallace Simpson's bottom. The one at the front has its tail resting on her crotch. And when you know the surrealist background, or the surrealist discourse, it entirely changes the way you see the photograph. Wallace Simpson is no longer wearing an innocent, jokey dance dress. It's a piece of walking, or rather waltzing, pornography. Well, the question is, was Simpson, just a month before her marriage to Edward, ex-King of England, aware that she was standing in a flowerbed with a bunch of pussy willow in her hand and a large red phallic symbol between her legs? According to James Danziger's authorised account of Beaton's work, he had been commissioned to take photographs of the former king's fiancée in May 1937 by Edward himself. The Duke wanted her, writes Danziger, quote, to be seen in a more romantic light. Well, that was certainly a good plan, since Simpson was widely seen in certain sections of British society as a money-grabbing and hard-edged Yankee, the wedding is a scandal. But the Duke's romantic light can hardly have meant decking her out as a shocking surrealist sex symbol. Well, did Wallace Simpson realise what she was doing? Beaton says in his diaries that she was, quote, artistically untutored. Along with politically ignorant, what a charmer he is about her. So it seems unlikely. She always said that the photos taken of her that day were the best that were ever done and never seems to have mentioned the sexual implication. The French never made the connection, nor did American Vogue, where Beaton's Chateau Condé photographs of her were published on the 1st of June 1937, just two days before her wedding. As Claire Eldred points out, the Americans never saw Simpson's marriage to Edward as shocking. Why would they? What the American readers of Vogue saw was a poor girl made good, the embodiment of the aspirational American dream. Now, they might not be the lucky girl who married a king, but they sure could try to dress like one. And none of those ideas had any room for Dali's surrealist aphrodisiac joke. So it left assuming that Cecil Beaton, master of the surreal photograph, the man with the wild even uncontrolled sense of the funny and bizarre, couldn't believe his luck when among the dresses Simpson had bought for her trousseau was this masterpiece of his new friend Salvador Dali's handiwork. All this business in his diary about the sunlight and the organza were, to say the least, disingenuous. Just goes to show how careful you have to be about diaries, at least when, like Beaton's, they were written to be published. The symbolism would certainly not have been lost on Beaton. And it's no wonder it was the pictures of Wallace in this dress, out of all the hundreds of photographs he took that day, that ended up in print, safe in the knowledge that few others would ever get the joke. But all this opens up yet another layer in this extraordinary photograph. The trail it leads to just seems to get darker and darker. Because Salvador Dali was yet another admirer of Hitler, as we shall see next time at the History Café.
For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.